This podcast is brought to you by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Well, the role of Federal Reserve officials on issues outside of their purview is drawing attention on Capitol Hill. Minnesota Fed President Neil Kashkari was called out by Pennsylvania Senator Pat Toomey for the bank's support of initiatives around education. Toomey feels that some of the research done by regional Fed banks is maybe not in line with the historical needs of said regional Fed bank. Christina Skinner is Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics at the Wharton School, and she joins us to discuss this. Christina, great to talk with you. Thanks for a few moments. Of course. Thanks for having me on the show. And so this is something that that you've looked into in terms of research, you and some colleagues, correct? Tell us about this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, a large portion of my work in the past two years really has been pushing back against the specter of a less independent Fed brought about by pressure on the Fed as an institution to to pursue goals that are outside of its statutory responsibilities, which is to say beyond its mandate. So in other words, I've been questioning the extent to which the public, the administration or forces within the Fed are pressing for the Fed's policy tools to be used to fix problems that Congress really hasn't asked it to do. So just to give you a quick overview of some of the key pieces of research here, So first, in this foundational piece that I call central bank activism, I examine how the Fed's footprint in financial markets has enlarged beyond its historic purview, how the Fed's exploration of a role for itself in addressing climate change may go beyond what the text of the Federal Reserve Act allows, and how possibly the Fed's role in augmenting the employment arm of its dual mandate to consider issues of wealth or even gender inequality could suggest the Fed assuming some fiscal role within its monetary policy. Then in other work, I I studied versions or offshoots of this. So for for example, there's been, as you mentioned, a lot of political attention to the reserve banks and their projects and how they might politicize the Federal Reserve System. And so in co-authored work with Professor Carola Binder at Haverford College, I've done an empirical study of how the topics that the Federal Reserve Bank researchers cover has changed in recent years. And, you know, as we can explain in our conversation, our data really suggests that Fed research is getting more activist, as we say. Yeah, I was going to say, so how do you qualify activism or, or, or an activist in the scope of of what we're talking about here? Obviously, it's a term that's been used in, in so many different realms uh, over the, the last several decades. Yeah, hugely important question. So the short answer is that we've been thinking about activism in terms of when the Fed or any central bank, for that matter, retrofits its policy tools to address new problems which the central bank determines to be socially and economically important, but which Congress or the relevant legislature has not specifically asked the central bank to do through statute. So, you know, there's nuance here. I want to emphasize that, you know, in in my work on activism, I've tried to be very clear that activism for one central bank is not necessarily activism for another. So it really depends all on what a legislature has asked the central bank to do in its mandate and whether the legal framework has given the executive branch, for example, the authority to shape a role for the central bank. So some things that might be activist for the Fed, for example, might not be activist for the Bank of England. You know, second important point here is that, you know, taking a cautionary stance toward activism is not the same as rejecting the need for central banks to adapt to new circumstances. So a quick example might help illustrate. So the difference between cyber risk and climate change, for example, might be might be a good case in point. So the Fed is responsible for making sure banks are safe and sound. 
banks routinely face cyber intrusions of their systems, and there's a discernible potential for cyber attacks to dismantle banks' payment systems or to result in the theft or loss of customer data imminently. So Fed supervisors can and have adapted cyber risk into their study of financial stability and firm-level operational risk. Now, climate change might be a different matter. There's much more uncertainty about the path of climate, the financial system's contribution to it, the ideal pace of transition to a low-carbon economy, trade-offs involved in that transition, and what the role of the state relative to the private sector should be in transition. These are all really thorny political questions that need to be in the first instance sorted out to be decided by democratically responsive institutions like Congress. So it's not democratically responsive responsible or appropriate for the Fed to substitute its judgment for that of Congress's in this particular situation. And doing so is what we think gives rise to activism. So let me ask you, how important then, when you're talking about the Federal Reserve or the regional feds, is it for these entities to investigate these other areas? And I'm thinking longer term when you're thinking about the economy going into the future. Yeah, so a couple points here. I mean, big picture, a lot depends on balance and judgment, right, as as so often is the case in central banking. So certainly we want to have a research function at our central bank that is looking forward, innovative, cutting edge, but to what degree, with what tone, and what level of analysis versus advocacy are all really important questions. So there are a number of countless issues that fall outside the Fed's purview, but are nonetheless important. So the question is, how do we draw the line, right? We'd probably say that it isn't the Fed's job to prevent economic fallout from potential nuclear war or to deal with trade wars or immigration issues. The same goes for other politically charged topics about which there is no clear social consensus, let alone a statutory instruction from Congress to the Fed. Then I guess the Federal Reserve officials kind of have to walk a fine line in terms of how much they do outside of their normal purview, correct? Yeah, you know, I I think that's that's probably, you know, absolutely right. Now, of course, there is a difference between private life and one's public role. But there is this norm against political involvement that's so ingrained in central banking culture that there are even limits on what central bankers can do in their private lives, right, if you think about conflicts of interest policy at the central bank. So surely this should make taboo the deployment of the authority, the legitimacy behind the Federal Reserve System itself to advance political initiatives, right? It's not about whether the issue itself is important or not. It's about whether this is the democratically and legally appropriate role for the central bank to have. And then there is also the question uh, of the brand of the Federal Reserve itself and and what it stands for and what the expectation is and to a degree how that must be protected as well. Absolutely. I mean, you know, historically, for both reasons of credibility, for the Fed's ability to transmit policy and for its policy decisions to sort of have their optimal and intended effect on the economy, you know, the Fed has historically been insulated in its decision-making from pressures from the political branches and the presidency in particular, and from sort of general popular forces. So the brand, so to speak, you know, is the credibility of the Federal Reserve, which in turn gives it the power and the authority to transmit its policy decisions and to impact in the economy. What do you think then is the driver of, of this type of activity, like we're seeing with uh, with Kashkari in, in Minnesota and and others as well, in terms of, 
you know, going outside of what what uh, Senator Toomey considered a normal purview to look at these areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think there's some, you know, dissatisfaction in some quarters between the pace, perhaps, at which Congress is acting and the desire to have certain policy impacts more immediately. So, you know, I often hear this refrain that Congress is gridlocked, right, used as an excuse or justification for the Fed to, again, act beyond the limit of its legislative authority to meet a perceived emergency. But, you know, my response to that is congressional inertia is a feature, not a bug, of our government as the framers of the Constitution designed it. So Congress can't turn on a dime in response to the public's passions or interests of a particular day. So Congress's Mm -hmm. deliberative nature combined with our system of checks and balances is what ensures the Fed won't be given formal goals through statute until society is very well settled on them. So in some of these cases, maybe it's not acting in a quote-unquote political realm, but it does feel like when you're talking about the Fed in general, whether it be uh, you know, in Washington, D.C. Or, or in some of these other locations, that politics is starting to have an impact of some kind. Well, I think certainly this is true. I mean, you know, as we've been discussing, the Fed is being pushed and pulled in a lot of different directions from both outside, for pressures both outside of the Fed and from from inside, and even ironically from Congress itself in some respects. So the CARES Act, which was enacted during the height of the COVID crisis, was maybe a moment in time in which it looked like Congress might be using the Fed as a bit of a piggy bank, pushing it into political lending, but without really clarifying the Fed's role in its formal constitutive statute in the Federal Reserve Act. And you know, big picture, I think it's incredibly important as a society to try and arrest the onset of activism and politics at and around the central bank, because it may well set us on a path of tremendous growth of the role of the central bank in our society. And ultimately, we may wind up in a place where we don't like, with so much power consolidated in the Federal Reserve and within the discretionary judgment of Federal Reserve Bank leaders, um, that may be very difficult to ultimately unwind or undo. What do you think was your takeaway from doing this research about about the Fed and, and the regional banks? So my big takeaway is that, you know, I, you know, as I sort of mentioned a couple of times throughout, I think that it is problematic when society has a false impression of the limits, the power, the capacity, the authority of the Federal Reserve, right? The Fed is not meant to be the Swiss army knife of all important economic issues of the day. It's important for central banks to continue to defer to the democratically responsive institutions. And it's important that the public realize the boundaries of what the Fed can and cannot do. In terms of Federal Reserve Bank structure and tying this together with the work on the Reserve Banks specifically, you know, I continue to be in the pro-Reserve Bank camp. So there are a number of Fed reformers that would do away with the Reserve Banks to lessen their independence from the board or to reduce their number. You know, I, I continue to be in favor of the existing structure for various reasons. But I do think that because the Reserve Banks are playing such an important role in communicating with the public, and also in driving momentum behind Fed policy, right? It's important that they also continue to work hard to preserve the independence and the apolitical nature of the system because the public will continue to get an impression, to take cues from the reserve banks about, again, what the role of the Fed is in the society and in our economy.
Christina, great insight. Thank you very much for your time. All the best. Thanks for having me. Christina Skinner, Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics at the Wharton School. To keep engaged with Wharton Business Daily and other Wharton School shows, visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.